Welcome to the Animal Welfare Junction. This is your host, Dr. G, and our music is written and produced by Mike Sullivan. Today we have an awesome guest. We have Vicky Disner from the Ohio Animal Advocates. Welcome, Vicky, and thank you for being here. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Vicky is part of Ohio Animal Advocates, and she's going to talk about it here in a second. It's an organization that I'm involved with as a board member, and we do a lot of great things for animal welfare. So first, to, to start things off, how about you tell us about the path that has taken you to where you are today? Um, well, personally, um, I spent the first 15 years of my career in the medical profession. I have an undergrad degree in zoology, a graduate degree from the University of Cincinnati Medical Center in Physiology, and a clinical degree from the University of Chicago in Respiratory Therapy. So I spent many, many years working with pulmonary patients uh, because I am one myself, I have asthma. Um, what kind of made me start looking outside that world is actually doing animal research in my master's degree. And I started seeing what I felt were some of the cruel situations that animals were put into in our current, uh, you might say political and um, cultural system. And started really like looking outside of what was going on and it happened one Christmas my ex-husband got me a book called seal song and he knew how much I loved animals and it had a nice furry seal on the outside but he never opened it up to see they were being clubbed on the inside wow. and at that point I, I wrote to the producers of that book International Fund for Animal Welfare and wanted information and pretty soon I was on everybody's mailing list <laughs> and starting to be a backseat a weekend activist and sending money. And finally it hit me at one point that I needed to make the change and figure out how to get in the environmental animal welfare world. Um, at that point, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. I remember driving up and having an interview with the Nature Conservancy and showing them that I had a business background at that point because I was a hospital administrator running home care companies and I had a marketing background and I had all the science background and they told me that I had no transferable skills. And so on the way back to Cincinnati, I said, well, what now do I need to do to get skills to make this transfer in my life? And I started looking at the magazines I get and everybody seemed to have a JD behind their name so I thought, okay, well, I'll go to law school. And, um, and with no more thought than that, I went to law school and uh, worked my way through and ended up in Columbus um, in the attorney general's office doing environmental enforcement. After a while, I ended up going over to Ohio Environmental Council and being their director and working on a variety of environmental issues, which actually included things like factory farms and other issues. So started getting exposed to actually the intersection between animal welfare and environmental work. And oddly enough, um, we moved our offices and the building that the Nature Conservancy used to be in became our offices. And the office where I was told I had no transferable skills became my office. So you never know sometimes how karma happens. And after 15 or more years, basically, in doing environmental work, including going to D.C. and working on the Hill uh, for National Wildlife Federation, I had the opportunity, because there were so many animal welfare conferences going on there, to go and see that actually it was becoming 
you know, a professional culture that was moving laws and doing exciting things like um, the livestock care standards that was moved by Proposition 2 in California by HSUS and realized that there was finally really an opportunity probably to make headway in legal and legislative advancement by moving over to that world and basically came back to Ohio as ASPCA's Midwest uh, Legislative Director. And after time, I realized the importance of actually building it from the ground like they did in the environmental community of moving from not just national organizations to statewide organizations that understand what's needed in the trenches of that state, the political environment and the culture and what needs to be done on a state level and a local level. And so actually that's part of the reason that Ohio Animal Advocates came to play is because also I was seeing around me in other states that was starting to happen of building state animal advocacy organizations. In fact, myself on behalf of OAA and a number of other state animal advocacy groups have formed the coalition of state animal advocacy groups. And we're up to about 20 states now and want to grow eventually to 50 because we need to help each other do the work we need to do you know, on the ground. That's amazing. I'm, I'm really glad that we get to have this conversation and do this interview because I didn't know that background about you. I didn't know that you were in the medical field. And it's such a, an amazing story of transition, just being, you know, thinking that you have that, that career, that call, and then actually finding your call and then finding what you are meant to do for animal welfare and animals. So I'm really glad that all of that brought you to where you're at. So what is Ohio Animal Advocates and what is the goal of Ohio Animal Advocates? Why was it created? Well, you know, looking at that idea of needing somebody on the ground, we wanted to be an advocate that actually worked for animals by affecting systematic change, really, and working toward humane treatment of animals. Now, this includes active support of local and state legislation toward the prevention of animal cruelty, as well as public awareness campaigns designed to teach communities across Ohio about the ongoing threats to animals. Um, we began as a small, dedicated group of Ohioans concerned about this issue, basically the unmet needs of Ohio animals that weren't totally being served by national organizations. So our board members, committee members, founders, volunteers, have been working on animal welfare issues on the ground in local communities throughout Ohio, as well as statewide policy at the state house for years and years. So these are kind of the folks that have seen it, they've done it, and they saw the need. And that need they felt was basically taking this dedicated group of people, bringing us all together in 2018 to form Ohio Animal Advocates with that goal of raising visibility of issues on Ohio's animal population with a regular face at the state house in city councils and throughout the state. And our mission is to make Ohio a place where all animals are protected from cruelty, abuse, and neglect. That's part of what is important for me and what kind of attracted me to your group is just that I practice as a veterinarian, but my real interest lies within veterinary forensics and animal welfare, that kind of stuff. One thing that I always said I have always said is I hate politics. I hate anything that has to do with politicians and laws and, and all of that stuff. I don't want to get involved. But then the more I have learned about animal welfare, the more I have realized that that's how you affect change, right? It's by changing the, the root causes. 
Exactly. So I cannot, I cannot complain about something if I am not trying to challenge it and change the way that, that those laws are written, right? If you disagree with something and you're passionate about it, then you want to find ways to, to do something about it. It has been an interesting journey for me and really informative being able to go up with you guys and then in some of the other times that I have gone in to, to speak in front of different organizations, uh, governmental organizations in, in favor of animals. And I have a long way to go, but I'm sure that you all are going to help push me forward. <laughs> what is the vision for Ohio Animal Advocates? What are the values of the organization? Well, we would love to make Ohio uh, basically the national model for the humane treatment of animals. Now, as I say that, when I started at ASPCA in 2012, we were 45th at the nation ranked by Animal Legal Defense Fund for basically having you know laws to protect animals. So we had a long ways to go. Now, we're basically 11 years down the pike, and um, especially with the cross-reporting bill that we just got passed, we're now up to 24. So we're halfway to getting to the top, but you know, um, it's our effort to really make us a model for the rest of the nation. And our values of what do we base it on? How do we do this? We want to champion the advancement of animal welfare in Ohio by initiating and implementing effective humane policies and programs. And we do that by building diverse partnerships and, and basically leading collaborative efforts. We can't do it alone and we can't do it just with humane professionals. We need to do it with other groups. Um, for example, with the issue of cross-reporting, you know, if we're going to mandate animal abuse reporting, we need to bring in social workers. We need to bring in therapists and counselors, people who are basically first responders, law enforcement, you know, home health aides. Um, we need to bring in everybody to the table to make this happen. We have to look to achieve positive, innovative solutions. We need to apply the best available resource and information, be professional, and involve all citizens and stakeholders across the state. Because, you know, basically, almost everyone has a pet in the home, if not many, and most of those pets are in our beds. They're part of our families. And so it's a bipartisan issue. Everyone cares. I was speaking with uh, Dana Panella recently on one of my previous podcasts about the importance of these laws. And again, like these are the ways to to do things. We were talking about how even like bestiality was not illegal up to 2017, I believe it was, mm-hmm. that, that passed. So we we know about the link. You know, we have talked about the link between animal cruelty and interpersonal violence and the importance yes. of as veterinarians to recognize animal abuse as a way to protect individuals, like so many cases of domestic violence, people are abusing uh, the the individuals in the house or using the animals as leverage to control the the people in the house. Uh, And then we were also talking about the cross-reporting bill because I've always been strong about reporting any case of suspected animal cruelty, but I know that a lot of my peers and other, other veterinarians have not wanted to do that because of concerns about retaliation, because of concerns about getting involved, what's going to happen, what if I'm wrong, and all of that, and all of those things. And one of the reasons when Representative Lenise was pursuing that bill, and you all asked me to come and speak in favor of it, I was 
very honored and very happy to do so, right? Because I feel that as veterinarians, it is our duty to help our patients and not just in providing vaccines and providing general care, just in general animal welfare. So that was something, something great. And we were talking about trying to educate through our podcast episode to veterinarians about the consequences of not doing so, because now we have to. Now it, it is important. Now it's not, a, it's not a choice. Now if we don't do it, we can have penalties. So with HB 33, can you discuss basically what it means to cross-report and what, what services have to report to who? Absolutely. Um, and I will share with you, we actually have one of the most comprehensive bills across the nation. And many states are looking to us for help with strategy and how to consider how to do all the training that we did, because it was a parallel track of training and working on the bill so that as professions got trained and understood the link between animal and human violence, and actually that animal abuse is the first you might say a uh, red flag, um, the sentinel warning that actually will, the rest of the family violence uh, will go up. I mean, it's actually a way for humane services um, to help human services to actually solve a family violence situation. So it's, you know, a partnership situation. And as many professions learned, they felt a lot more comfortable and actually turned around and came and actually were, were proponents of our bill which made a big difference, including the OVMA, which that has not happened in other states. Um, as you know, now they teach the issue of the link at the Midwest Veterinarian Conference, and they have a guide out and articles, and they are in favor of it. Because actually, I mean, you really are serving your clients that come in, not only the animal, but if that animal's been abused, um, I mean, there's times when actually a woman has used, a woman victim has come in and used the animal, as you might say, a cover to slip a note, to uh, you know, someone else in the office to say, I am being abused, please call the police. So it's really looking at it from the whole, you might say a holistic perspective that you're helping, if you can save an animal, you can save a family. And indeed, um, you know, they're mandatory reporting. It's not only re mandatory reporting in the fact that there's penalties, but you get civil and criminal immunity. So professions are able, you might say, to go over that hump of having confidentiality holding them back and start to work with other professions. And indeed, just a year ago, in fall, not even a year ago, I guess we're not quite there yet, but about six months ago, uh, Dr. Janet uh, Hoy Gerlach, who is a professor, a social worker professor at the University of Toledo, she was doing a presentation at Toledo Humane. And the Humane officer shared what a difference that bill made because they're now working hand in hand with veterinarians in the community that are able to give notes, are able to give pictures, are able to give the evidence that was always needed to build cruelty cases that didn't happen before. And building those cruelty cases will not only help that animal, but that will help the family. Yeah, we were discussing about the importance of having those things on people's records, right? Like when when somebody is abusing an animal, uh, especially when there is severe, serious injuries. We were discussing a case that, that I was working on that the prosecutor decided not to pursue charges for the animal abuse. The animal was starved to death in their basement. And there was proof that they did it on purpose just to get back at each other. And the prosecutor just chose not to pursue that because there were other felonies that they were already charging these people with. 
And it is so important to add those animal cruelty charges to at the very least keep these people from being able to own an animal ever again, but there's children involved. So the link is, is just so, I don't know. I, I think that we have a, we have still have a long way to go. So it's good that some of these laws are in effect to kind of push us forward, but we definitely still have, have a long way to go. Well, I was going to share with you a case that happened that lays it out as boy as shall we say visually as you can but it it, it draw it really drives the point home um there's a detective that i co-present with a lot in regard to law enforcement training and he's in wood county lucas county is the county in ohio that has the highest amount of domestic violence could be related to human trafficking and other issues but it just does in that area also has the highest amount of bestiality in the state but at any rate um there was a case that started in lucas county where um, an abuser came home, a perpetual abuser, and was mad at his wife and her daughter and basically grabbed the favorite Shih Tzu and slit its throat, took the daughter's favorite scarf, tied it around the Shih Tzu's net, hung it from a tree in the front yard for days to teach them both a lesson. The neighbors wow. called, and so the police came and interviewed the wife and the daughter and what they chose to do is they brought the guy in, they put an ankle monitor on him, but basically let him go and said, get out of Lucas County. He ended up in Wood County where his sister was. He then contacted his wife and said, I'm going to commit suicide. Come and get my property for you and, you know, your daughter. Well, she, you know, ran down. She was scared to death. He was going to commit suicide. What he did was kidnap her, beat her for two and a half days strangle her and only when his sister came home did he shove the wife in a car and take off to another county henry county and was going to take her to his favorite fishing ground and kill her she remembered there was a pen knife in the glove compartment she got at it she stabbed him in the leg um distracted him enough that she opened the door rolled out and the car behind her picked her up got her to a hospital and when detective curtis got there he said it was the worst case of strangulation he ever saw of a woman that she lived. And, you know, thank goodness she is speaking to people about this and trying to, you know, draw the point home that we have to take the link between animal and human violence seriously. And when Toledo, when, when it was looked back into his history, he's in jail now, but when it looked into his history, he had been a previous abuser of both previous wives, previous girlfriends, and animals. So why wasn't that discovered? But I mean, the connection is there. And, you know, yeah. we have to pay attention to it. And I would bring up, we finally passed in Ohio last year, a felony strangulation bill. We were the second last state in the nation to pass a felony strangulation bill. So before that, it was just a misdemeanor? Yeah, South Carolina finally did too. But we, we in South Carolina, we were the last. We're the last ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, we have to take crimes more seriously because there is, with, with things like, even when we look at like dog fighting, right? What dog fighting is a crime in itself and now it's a, and it's a felony. But dog fighting, it's linked to other crimes. It's linked to drugs. It's linked to weapons. It's linked to gambling, uh, human trafficking, yep. uh, child abuse. I know that 
Yeah, people that, that abuse animals, animals are defenseless victims. So somebody that's going to abuse a defenseless victim, an animal, a human, a child, an elderly, it's all potentially going to going to be the same, going to present the same as far as I, the way well, I see it. Well, an abuser starts with the most defenseless member of the family that has no voice. And actually, they say that abusers that go after animals end up being definitely control issues and actually become more, more dangerous than other abusers. But you find animal abuse behind school shootings, mass shootings, terrorism, um, serial killers. You know, I could go on and on. Unfortunately, it shows up everywhere because people choose the most defenseless uh, species and they, you know, they start there. Phil Arca with the link, I know that in one of his uh, newsletters, he released information about some of the shootings that happened last year. And he reviewed the backgrounds of the individuals that committed these mass shootings. And he found elements of animal abuse in those. And they were ignored. I believe in one of them, the parents were recommended that the child seek professional help and the parents didn't. And then this kid ends up shooting up other people, murdering other people. It starts at a young age and we have to recognize that as a young age, especially as parents, you know, I have a 17 year old. So to me, it's really important to make sure that he has good morals, he has good values and that he can respect all life, he can respect animals and, and everything else. So I think it's really important for parents to understand and if they see something to not just brush it out, to take it seriously. Because yeah, sometimes kids are experimenting and they don't know what they're doing or, or whatever the, the case may be. But if something if something is not okay, we have to do something about it. Um, Absolutely. I had a I had a case of a 13-year-old that sexually assaulted their dog. And as far as we know, that was the first time that that child had done something. The family members, they had children in the house. If I had not reported it, if I had not done something about it, what would have happened then? Then this kid would have gone home and potentially escalated to assault the children in the house. Grown up to be, he was only 13 at the time, so he could have grown up to be a, a serial killer or be a serial rapist. So That's right. really, impor really important for, for everybody to recognize and to do their part. And the cross-reporting is not just for veterinarians to report, but then other groups have to report as well. Is that correct? Correct. Social workers, counselors, therapists, and, and, and in a cross situation, law enforcement, dog wardens, animal control officers, and humane agents have to report child and uh, elder abuse. What other rules and legislations have you worked on that are related to animal welfare? Um, when I first got back here to Ohio, um, got pulled into the throes of finalizing the first puppy mill regulations that were passed, uh, the livestock care standards, uh, the exotics ban, uh, because the Zanesville massacre had just happened, and that was where um, a man had shot himself but opened up cages of close to, I think, 50 animals, lions and tigers and bears, and they were running crazy around uh, Zanesville, and no one was prepared for that, and unfortunately, law enforcement uh, killed them, all but a few that ended up going to the zoo. But um, that woke, that definitely woke the state government up, that it was time to really look at doing that. 
I personally have taken a route down the issue of domestic and family violence and passed the pet protective orders, the bestiality laws, the felony cruelty worked on, uh, felony cockfighting at the same time. You know, before this cross-reporting, we worked on, um, you know, animals in hot cars. We've gotten issues of, well, actually, this was actually because my dog got kicked off of a restaurant patio. I sh we should have called it Dottie's Law. But at any rate, um, you know, animals are allowed on restaurant patios now. Um, there's, you know, animals can be addressed by emergency um like med techs and that that are out in an ambulance if an animal has been hurt as well as a person on a disaster um, scene just so many different laws we have dealt with there's been about 10 that have been passed in ohio in the last 10 years that i've been here and in other states i've worked in we've worked on ag gag bills which actually was going to make it a felony for somebody to report felony cruelty um you know document it um, issues of trying to uh, change state constitutions and create rights to farm and rights to hunt and fish. And that sounds innocent enough until you realize that means that elevates the rights of those categories of people above others. An example would be in Indiana, they did pass a right to farm. And what's happened is that if a factory farm moves next to someone in a rural community, someone that's been there for years, even though you might say the nuisance came to them, they have no right anymore under tort law to sue for that nuisance. So they have to tolerate the loss of property value, the loss of clean air and clean water around their property, the flies and everything, the smells. And because basically the rights of farmers are above everything else. If you look at the rights of hunters and fishermen, you don't need fishing license or hunting license because you could hunt and fish to the point that you exterminate the populations. So, you know, those are dangerous things that we have to look at. Um, right now, we're looking at issues of um, ODNR is getting ready to release a bobcat management plan. Now, that's not really management. What that right. basically is, is looking at doing a, a harvest of the animals, even though they just got off the state endangered list. And, you know, are, are very secretive animals. And a lot of them are, you know, do get hit as roadkill, but, you know, there's a part of the population that wants to trap them and, you know, sell their skins. Um, but what will that do for the whole ecosystem? So, you know, issues like that, or I don't know if you've heard of uh, wildlife killing contests. That is something that has escalated in the last five to eight years where there will be these weekend tournaments for prizes, could be cash, could be other things that, you know, people will go out and kill as many, say in Ohio, it tends to be coyotes, as many animals as you can kill, the biggest, the smallest, the prettiest, you know, whatever. And um, you may kill hundreds of animals in a weekend, but for what? It's not for wildlife management. It's for the sake of killing. And, you know, certainly these are things that we need to address and we need to look at. There is a difference between like, I, I don't hunt. I don't like the idea of hunting, but I somewhat understand why some people hunt. And especially when they hunt for food, the idea of somebody killing something for fun or for price, that to me, there, there is something wrong with getting an enjoyment out of just killing for fun. It, you know, it, it's just, I don't know. It's just not right. And it's not like I was raised to to think that way because I grew up in Puerto Rico cockfighting 
was like it's a normal thing it's part of the culture and i and still i knew within me that it was not okay i didn't like the the idea of it um so so yeah it's it's kind of sad that we encourage people to exterminate wildlife without thinking about the repercussions we start thinking about some of the animals that are taking over and we're taking away their predators so we're not we're not thinking about what our actions are doing to our environment and our ecosystem. And then we are looking for solutions when we're eliminating our solutions. Right. That that was well said. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Recently, we were dealing with the problem of allowing breeders to perform surgeries. So that was uh, kind of disappointing. But do you want to? Yes. Explain people what what the what what was going on with that. Well, first I'll start by sharing the sad fact that Ohio is number two in the nation for being the worst regarding cruelty in puppy mills, only right behind Missouri. And um, in that, we have continued to fight ever since the first puppy mill regulation bill was passed for um, better bills, um, better implementation, you might say, of the bill that was on the table, the legislation. And, um, you know, Ohio Department of Ag is the um, the agency with the authority to implement and enforce. Now, mind you, uh, even in the first bill, there are penalties for recalcitrant breeders and that violate the laws. There's the option to take away permits. That's never, ever happened either penalties or the repeal of a permit. But um, in 2018, a number of uh, our groups worked together to basically improve the first bill that passed in 2013. One of the issues that we had problem with in the 2013 bill was that it allowed breeders to still do surgery. And so that was changed. And actually um, the statement as it read, was basically that in 2018, what the rule says is if a surgery or euthanasia procedure is required, use a veterinarian to perform the procedure. Now, to me, sounds pretty clear cut. But what has happened is, I mean, first of all, in 2018, that passed. The agency had the responsibility to pass rules within the next year. They did not pass rules for four years till 2022. Um, when they could finally come up with a way, you might say, to try to figure out how to skirt that. And what they claim is that um, tail docking, which is going, as you will explain, going through tissue, going through bone, going through arteries, going through skin, um, it's clear-cut surgery, but um, and it's not light, uh, that basically no reason a breeder can't do that. No reason they can't pull dew claws. And why? How do they get around what the law says? Well, they hang on that word required, and they say that that's supposed to be defined as medically required. And since those procedures are not medically required, but required by the AKC breeding standards, that it's not really medically required, so they can still keep doing it because the breeders still want to. They want to save money. If animals are hurt, if they die, they're expendable to them. And, you know, basically what seems very odd is when we originally challenged this in April at JCAR, and I will explain that because people go, JCAR, what's that? It's the Joint Commission on Agency Rule Review. And in Ohio, since we have a full-time legislature, since most states do not, 
you know, we can give legislators other things to do, including having a JCAR panel, a committee of legislators that review every agency rule that's proposed. And the public has a right to challenge those rules if they are in conflict with the law. So we indeed did challenge those rules because we feel it is in direct conflict with the law. And gee, the JCAR staff, all the JCAR legislative members all felt it was and told the agency to go back to the drawing board. Come December in 2022, we're back because ODA is again offering rules and regulations, but this time they came up with a new angle. They stuck in that they were going to give the breeders a how-to manual. Well, this isn't a toaster. It's, it's live animals. And indeed, for whatever reason or whatever money was exchanged, you had a situation where all of a sudden the staff of JCAR and the legislators turned upside down and said, oh, we think there's no conflict with the rule, with the law, because there's a how-to manual. And... Um, we would disagree with that. And they may have won that battle, but they have not won the war. And we need to work on this to improve the lives of the puppies that grow up in these puppy mills and unfortunately the breeding animals that are left behind. One other problem that didn't seem to get as much traction, but is just as dangerous is the fact that in the new rule, and it wasn't there before, that basically the veterinarians that their kennels are the clients, the puppy milk kennels, always had to see every dog in a kennel once a year, which doesn't seem like a lot anyhow, but put together an overall management plan. Well, now animals under six months of age are exempted from being seen. And they're the animals that are gonna go through these procedures. And so this is re really disconcerting because they won't be in the records then. The discarded animals won't be reported. Things are, you might say, um, under the covers. It's kind of it's kind of ridiculous that uh, as a forensic veterinarian, the things that they are allowed to do are things that if any other person was to perform, then we would be able to press charges against them for animal yes. cruelty because they are doing procedures. They're saying that these procedures are required by the AKC, but AKC requires that for show animals. Well, these animals are not being shown. I mean, like, I don't know that people go to a puppy mill to buy a show dog, right? If you're gonna, if you're going to go through the process of showing a dog, of getting a dog of pedigree to breed it, to show it, you're going to go to a reputable breeder that has done all the testing, that has done a certification of, of hips, eyes, that has evaluated the breed requirements because the whole idea of showing and breeding is to have the best of the best of each breed, the best representatives. We're trying to breed out diseases, breed out defects. And puppy mills just do it for the money, so they don't care who they're breeding, right? I have seen breeders, I have seen puppy mills breed dogs that are deformed with conditions like Neospora that causes their knees to not form properly, and they still breed those dogs and sell the puppies. Uh, and then once the once the poor dogs that are deformed are done breeding, then they just give them to rescues because then sometimes some of the rescues, you know, we, we love the rescues and we want to help the rescues. But sometimes the rescues are just helping these people just maintain the cycle. They're just enabling them by keeping taking these animals and not helping with reporting. And 
from the rescue perspective, I understand their concern because they feel that the the rules and the laws are so weak at times that it that they feel that if they say something, nothing's going to happen to the breeders because, as you mentioned, they will come in and they will do their inspections and they will maybe get a fine or get a slap on the wrist, but nothing happens. They don't get shut down. They don't get their licenses taken away. So then these rescues are put in a hard place because if they say something, then they're not going to be able to save the animals that that they're able to. So it's just a it's just a really sad and unfortunate situation. And the more people purchase animals from some of these pet stores, chain pet stores and puppy mills and backyard breeders, the more they are allowing this business to to go on. Well, and there's consumer fraud. As you started to put the scenario together, what ends up happening is people go into stores like Petland and they get shown a dog and they get put in a little space and play with the dog and they fall in love. And then pretty soon they find out the dog is thousands of dollars and they can't afford it. But, oh, there's a there's an option here. There's a loan you can get. Um, and, you know, people sign these loans that have in some states gone up to 187% interest rate. And then they end up with animals sometimes that are so sick that they die in a week, they die in a month, they die in a year, or they carry on congenital issues or other issues throughout their life. And people lose these animals, they have to pay the medical care, and yet they're paying three more years in interest rates and high loan fees um, on a dead dog. It's an atrocity. And, and, it is very clear that places like Petland, they do not care about the individual animal because they even have those puppy for life type things because they don't they they barely pay anything for these dogs that are selling thousands and thousands of dollars for. So if somebody has a dog that dies or I've even seen dogs that have been like hit by a car, like something that's not related to the health of that animal. And then they just go back and they get another one. They're, they're just very indispensable. They don't really care about the individual animal. And they are preying on the hearts of people and the emotions of people that are going in. Like how many of those are impulse buys? How many people just walk in because they want to see and play with the animals? Or they just stop by for another reason. They stop by to buy pet food or to buy a collar for somebody and they end up with a $5,000 bill and a, and a dog. And not just the payment for the dog. Then it's like, here's a bed and here's a collar and here's food and here's vitamins and things that you don't know being sold to you by somebody that doesn't have an education in animal care, but that's telling you that this is everything that the animal needs. And then let's not even go into the diseases that some of these animals bring out that are zoonotic that people can get. Camptobacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, HSUS a couple of years ago brought us a dog that they had gotten from a pet land. And they brought it directly to us and the dog had horrible diarrhea and we tested it and it had very resistant Campylobacter and it took months to get rid of it. Um, so these are, these are problems that, again, the, as long as people are purchasing these animals and just promoting these purchases, then the problem is not going to go away. Everything is supply and demand. So if the demand goes away, the supply dwindles. And we feel bad for the animals that are kind of going to get stuck in the middle in the process, but something has to get done because, I mean, 
has to it, change. It's just, it's just animal cruelty. I'm very passionate about hoarders, like looking into hoarders. And one of the types of hoarders are the exploiter hoarders. And I just failed to find a difference between an exploiter hoarder and a puppy miller. But yet we take exploiter hoarders to jail or at least give them fines and give them probation and make them not have animals. But then puppy mills, which are exploiter hoarders, get to benefit and make profit and everything else. So at some point, somebody has to understand the difference and, and understand that that is not okay. Well, and Dr. G, as you point out, you know, what's the difference between those two? Why is it that if it was outside a puppy mill, absolutely a veterinarian would be required to do these procedures we mentioned, but somehow because it's in a puppy mill, the vet licensing board lets the vet, lets basically vets off the hook that just oversee the breeders doing this. It makes no sense. It makes no sense for your profession. One of the things that I was discussing with Dana Panella was the fact that it's animal cruelty and neglect to not follow a veterinarian's recommendation. So if an animal is suffering, if an animal is not getting proper medical care, then that individual, that owner can be charged with animal neglect, animal cruelty, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, but they can get charged with one of them. But as you mentioned, those rules do not apply to puppy mills. And I mean, I, I just, again, I, it's, it's, the same, it's the same being, it's still a companion animal. It's, they're not livestock. And all of a sudden, just because they're owned by a high volume breeder, they're just considered livestock and they're treated as such. Uh, and not that livestock should be treated poorly, but there are different laws for livestock management and care and different laws for companion animals. And all of a sudden it's like everything gets thrown into the mix. Like they're just because they belong to, to certain groups, they can be treated as livestock. Absolutely. Well, in fact, ODA says, you know, basically they see the commercial dog breeding audience as basically they are livestock because now they're trying to suggest that they're going to go ahead and because they're finding uh, particularly the Amish breeders are never there when they go to do unscheduled visits that they want to start thinking about doing scheduled visits. So certainly everybody can clean up their act before they get there. But um, that way, you know, maybe they're looking at trying to save money. And instead of having inspectors that are trained to really look at these kennels, they're going to have an inspector that may go look at a slaughterhouse or a dairy farm or whatever in an area. And, and then, you know, also schedule a commercial dog breeding visit, because after all, like ODA says, it's all livestock. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the problem. Yeah. And that's one of my hopes is that, you know, that's, again, one of the reasons why, why I feel that I wanted to get involved is that I'm not going to do anything from, from inside of a clinic. You know, I'm helping animals by doing high volume sterilization and I'm helping control overpopulation and I'm helping control the, the health of the community animals and that kind of stuff. But these animals that are kind of ignored and neglected, somebody needs to do something for them. Somebody needs to fight for them. So I suppose I, I got some fight in me. So it is. It's something we that are I, so glad to have you. We need we need people who are willing to get up there and advocate. And, um, you know, look at, look at the cruelty and look past it and what we can do to change it, right. get to the root exactly. of it. Right. Exactly. So what are, so what are the overall, the areas of work for Ohio animal advocates? Like what are the, the key areas of work 
Um, well, I mean, besides, you know, policy work we do, we have a number of program areas. Um, one of the things is eliminating breed discrimination in Ohio communities, because we did get rid of that state law. And in fact, we did some lawsuits and um, in a number of appellate districts, we're not even allowed to have breed discrimination, like in the central Ohio appellate district. But, um, you know, there's still some towns and there's still landlords that are trying to do that. And in particular, um, now using it as an excuse for evicting people. And part of this ties into also the pet assistance we do for homeless and low income. And I bring this up because this is a big area that's growing in Ohio. Unfortunately, it's growing everywhere because post pandemic, finally the eviction bans have ended. And so for tenants who didn't pay, maybe weren't able to pay, they lost their jobs for a long time, they can be evicted now. And there can be reasons used for, because they have um, animal that they consider as breed dangerous, or just because they have an animal. And actually under the Fair Housing Act, you absolutely are allowed to bring in a service animal or an emotional support animal as long as you have the appropriate paperwork. And there are situations now where landlords are ignoring them. But definitely the issue of challenges of low-income families is growing, and we wanted to provide assistance in this. So one of the things we have is statewide resource lists that actually one of the big lists we have is pet food pantries around the state. So that will help people in those situations, along with where there is low-cost spay-neuter, um, trap-neuter release um, to help with um, community cats. Uh, where to report cruelty, because that can be very confusing in every county. Safe havens to get animals out of domestic violence and wildlife um, rehabbers. So we provide that. We um, work on issues of, you know, the cross-reporting was part of that whole issue of family and domestic violence, but we're looking at doing, um, identifying safe haven deserts in Ohio where there's domestic violence shelters, but there's no safe havens to take the animal to. And that is so critical because um, both national statistics and state statistics show that the majority of women will not leave an abusive situation unless they can get their animal out. So we need to have more safe havens. And indeed, there's a lot more grants out there and we're gonna go out and market um, and try to get people applying for those grants. Um, we protect wildlife. You know, Part of the issue I mentioned to you about bobcats, um, you know, we'll fight there regarding the regulations that DNR is proposing and also on wildlife uh, killing contests and other issues. Um, we address the cruelty in puppy mills as we've discussed. We aid on community cats issues. We've been doing community cat summits uh, for the last several years. We've done them virtually because of the pandemic and actually been able to include regional areas, states around Ohio in on this and just released this year a state of the state report that is the most comprehensive list in Ohio of all the spay, neuter and TNR resources there are identifying where those deserts are and actually looking to help get funding for mobile spay neuter units to um, actually get into these areas and help out the community cats and also pass ordinances in towns about protecting those cats. We also um, want to assure there's adequate shelter for animals um, that are out either in hot weather or cold. And indeed, um, we need to look at that because 
Um, back to the issue of low income, sometimes landlords, I mean, if there isn't an option to get an animal inside and people need a home, they may need to keep their animal outside. So we need to help them with options about how to create that adequate shelter. And then lastly, we want to build compassionate communities through humane education, which includes alternatives to dissection in school, alternatives to animal testing and cosmetics, um, and also um, education at an elementary school level. Um, we've had a number of programs we have run with librarians and school teachers because indeed it has been found that children between third grade and sixth grade, their minds are just more able to absorb the whole idea of compassion. And if you bring stories to them of com learning compassion for animals, you actually build you might say an ability for that person to have compassion toward their family, toward their neighbors, toward their community. And so it really helps build a responsible citizen. And one of the things we did create last year was Real Ohio Tours, um, that actually it was a time when a lot of people wanted to get out after you know the pandemic was ending and wanted to be somewhere, but it was still safer outside. And we wanted to get people out to see what animal sanctuaries there are in Ohio that, you know, what are people doing in the trenches on the ground to help these animals, whether they be companion animals, wildlife, or farm animals? Um, it was a hit. A lot of people thoroughly enjoyed it. We're repeating it this year. We shared with you the brochure, if there's a way for you to get it to your podcast members. But we would say, please, just go to OAA's website, OhioAnimalAdvocates.org, and under Humane Education, um, look for the Real Ohio Tours, look for the brochures. We just did one um, the middle of April to Last Chance Corral in Athens. And that is a wonderful sanctuary that takes in nursing folks. Now what nursing folks is are unfortunately a byproduct of the racing industry where um, basically the um, race horses are bred. Um, but they do not want the, the mares to nurse those foals. So instead, they have regular horses, have foals, that they eventually move the racing horse foal to that mare, but then that nurse foal is discardable. And 90% of them die. They're either sent to slaughter, they're left to die because they're not fed and they don't get to milk. It's a very sad situation. And so Last Chance Corral is one of the rescues that takes some of the animals in, but most do not make it. Yeah, I did um, not know about I did not know about that whole issue until this came, you know, until this happened, this real Ohio tour. So it's it's amazing, not just being able to go, you know, everybody feels about, okay, I want to go and I want to pet the, you know, play with the with the falls and everything else but just the education that goes along with it. So all of these sanctuaries have a reason for being, right? Not just, not just being kind of a petting zoo of sorts. They are actually sanctuaries that are taken in these animals because of certain reason. So what are the other uh, Ohio tours that are planned for the rest of the year? Yes, and we, we invite everyone to come on them. And, and please go on and register and register early on the website because sometimes there is capacity limit when we go places. On June 3rd, we're going to be going to Homeless to Home Cat Sanctuary in Marion. And they do a wonderful job of taking in a lot of cats that have nowhere else to go. Um, on June 24th, we're going to be going to Butternut Wildcat Sanctuary, and there's a man there. He got our um, animal 
Sanctuary Award of the Year last year for 40 plus years. He's been taken in uh, wildcats of all sorts, wolves and you know other animals that really wouldn't have a place to go. And um, you know he he's down to some bobcats and um, he knows he kind of needs to maybe uh, fade out from what he's doing. And we didn't want him to fade out without him being acknowledged for the wonderful work that he does. And it, it's just a wonderful place and his stories are wonderful. On uh, July 15th, we're going to Walking Wild, which um, is a fox sanctuary. And it's actually the largest one in the United States. They have over 100 foxes there. They actually have some wolf dogs too. And I think they've taken in some coyotes last year. But indeed, they really do a great job in working with the industry to take what animals they will give up, sometimes because the fur isn't what's wanted or for whatever reasons, but they're getting the animals that they can and trying to rehab them and really bringing attention to the issue. And in fact, we're going to be working to see if we can't convince the Columbus City Council to look at a ban, an, an ordinance on banning fur sales in the city of Columbus. And we'd like to take them out to Walking Wild to see what's really going on. Um, we also then, um, in August, we're still looking to schedule uh, a tour, but in September, on the 15th, we're going to uh, Sunrise Farm Sanctuary in Marysville, which is one of the biggest in Ohio, and they have cows, and they have draft horses, and they have uh, pigs, and they have goats, and they have chickens, and they have ducks, and they have geese, and they have dogs, they have cats, and they all live together in peace. Um, so that says something that, it, you know, we could learn from. And then in October, we're going to Glen Helen's Raptor Center down in Yellow Springs on the 14th that they have a number of birds that they've taken in. They try to rehab them when they can and, and let them go back out in the wild. But when they can't, they have a home. We just really encourage everyone to come. They're wonderful, wonderful trips. We'll be sharing the information and the flyer on our website on forensics.vet, that's forensics.vet, and on our Animal Welfare Junction Facebook page. Um, and then also, how can people support Ohio Animal Advocates? Well, thank you so much for asking. I mean, if you go to the OAA website, um, there's a donate button right on the home page. But indeed, um, we are looking at the end of June of having our giving week. Um, actually, Columbus Foundation helped a number of Central Ohio nonprofits like do this during the pandemic because funds were down and we've continued as well as a number of other organizations. And our board has actually put up a match of $4,000 for folks when they give so you can really double your efforts. And we will be advertising it on the website. And please go in and join. Um, and, and we'd love to have you as members. We'd love for you to be part of the backbone of this organization that helps support getting to the root causes of animal cruelty in Ohio. And then for those people that may be listening later in the year, Giving Tuesday is also going to be an opportunity to, to be raising funds and to be supporting the, the organization. So ohioanimaladvocates.org. Visit, share, like, uh, join. It's, uh, what's, the, what's the fee to be a member? $25, but if you're a senior or a student, it's $10. And you can also, if you wanted to give in monthly donations, that's an opportunity too, but you can also spread out your donation over time. I'm hoping that people that have listened to this, this episode 
have learned about the laws and how everything happens as far as animal welfare, where we're at, where we need to go. And I hope that some of it has maybe sparked something in, in individuals. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and go over this. So in closing, what can the community do to support animal welfare? Uh, you know, what can they do to, to help improve things? You can join OAA, but you can also go to the website and under action alerts, look for what we have. Um, there's template letters. There's an opportunity to basically reach out, find out who your legislator is, who your local council person is, and send information, advocate, and be a voice for the voiceless. And also, in addition, you know, join the Real Ohio Tours, find out what's going on, and you can also volunteer. We have many opportunities and many ways to make a difference and be part of our team. Fantastic. So anybody listening, again, Ohio Animal Advocates, please take a look at it and share with your friends because we all love animals and we're all into animal welfare. So thank you so much, Vicki, for being here today. And thank, thank you, Dr. That you're, thank you for everything that you're doing and hope to be doing more stuff with you as we go forward. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good evening, everyone.